Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Jeff Richards. He's the managing partner at GGV Capital. Jeff, welcome back to the pod. Good to see you again. It's been a while. You've been a little busy over the last few months. <laughs> I had to go look at our notes, and it was I, the last pod we did, I think, was Deirdre and Rick Heitzman, and this was mid-March. This was in the throes of the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown, and we really focused on what was going on there and how it affected VC firms like yours and Rick's and how it was affecting your portfolio companies. Hey, by the way, stick around. I have a great conversation with the aforementioned Rick Heitzman, right after Jeff and I get done, we are going to hit two of his portfolio companies. One of them is Synthesia, and the other is Roe. You may also know them as Roman, and we go deep in, in some of the trends that are going on with those two companies. But Jeff, let's start with this AI thing, because I got to tell you, man, I feel like we'd still be bogged down with the regional banking crisis. <laughs> this AI bubble didn't actually inflate in, in a manner, and it was pretty convenient. Thank God the scriptwriters planned ahead, and we got the transition from SCB to AI in a very rapid fashion. It was interesting. I think we were talking about it at the time. There was not exactly the sort of systemic risk that we felt in and around that kind of 08 09 period. But we also talked about at the time that there was a lot of really great technologies that were born out of that very disruptive period in the financial markets. And it feels like that narrative played out really to a T right here, because this is a technology that you, as somebody who's followed enterprise software for decades now, you've been using these terms, machine learning and generative AI and all this stuff. For years and years, you've invested in companies that are actually doing real work in and around these spaces. And I'm just wondering, what do you feel like has bubbled up in the last few months or so? Because to me, it brings me back to, let's say, two decades ago or even longer in the late 90s when we saw all the excitement in and around the internet and e-commerce and search and digital payments and all that. And everybody knew it was real. But what they couldn't actually put their finger on is like how it was going to be commercialized, when it was going to be commercialized, who were going to be the winners. And there was a bubble that inflated and then burst. And when it burst, it was really nasty for a few years. It was nasty for somebody who was a founder back then. I was a founder in, from 97 to 2002 in my first company. So I lived through the first bubble as a founder and it was brutal because everybody was throwing so much money at, at the idea. You have to wind back the clock though. If we think back in, I think it was 99 or 2000, there were a couple hundred million internet users around the world. So to me, that bubble was a very interesting one in that we saw the potential of the internet. We saw the potential of high-speed internet or high-speed bandwidth, but there weren't very many users. When I was at VeriSign, I sold my company to VeriSign in 2005, and I was at VeriSign from 05 to 08. We were in the middle of kind of a lot of what was happening on the internet with credit cards and digital transactions. And I remember a stat at the time that a very small percentage of people even had a credit card on the internet in 2005. Fast forward to 2023, it's just a different era. So I think though part of the reason why people are so excited about what's happening with generative AI now, and as you mentioned, we've been investing in most of our companies have been using AI in some capability for the last decade. But if you wind back the clock and think about when Amazon launched AWS in 05, 06, knowing what you know now, you would have gobbled up as many shares of Amazon as you could, even though... You know, if you look back at the history of AWS, it was a $3 billion revenue business in 2013. Fast forward 10 years later today, it's $80 billion. So those first five or six years in any new major shift, big bet, i.e. cloud computing, generative AI, takes a while to get going. But once it gets going, the compounding benefit is just massive. And I think that's why you're seeing people bid these names up. 
AWS was a pillar of the bear case for Amazon for a very long time because all of the spending, right, that that the company was doing. And this is a company that obviously was a retail company that had very slim margins on what they did. And so they went all in on that opportunity. And then Prime was also one of those things that people love to hate back then around the same time <laughs> or so. But it's interesting that the hard part about public investing, and you know this better than anyone, and you seem to be a lot more patient than I am about this stuff. And I think it probably comes from being an entrepreneur and being an operator. And then obviously you've had an exit in, in, in large publicly traded companies and you see what it takes to actually be successful over the long term or so. But when I think about this, the, what I would say is that the hype cycles, they're just getting so much more fierce, right? When you think about what's gone on, because usually it bubbles up in some smaller names. Right now, a lot of this is playing out in these multi-trillion dollar names. And we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars of market cap that have been gained just in the last, call it six to seven months since ChatGPT4 was introduced or so. And that's the thing to me that makes it very apparent. You can draw on the similarities of the late 90s, but then you can say well, these were small companies and the user base were there. And we didn't know what the commercialization was going to be and how quickly it was going to come. We know a lot of that now, right? Like we can actually get a good sense for that. And I just wonder though, is just all of this excitement in such a short period of time, whether it's sustainable or not, at least in the public markets. And then let's definitely hit on the private markets and what you're seeing there. I think you're the dollars that stake are much bigger, right? I mean, that that's why you're seeing people move so aggressively into these names. Your point, though, are these short-term investors expecting some kind of revenue bump for most of the Most of these companies aren't going to see a huge revenue bump from AI anytime soon. It's going to take years to play out. So if you're a long-term investor, it's a great thesis and a great bet. I just don't know a huge percentage of the market moves on short-term trades and people who are just moving in and out. So I don't know how much of that is sustainable. But another great data point that I've, I shared on Twitter last year was in 1999, the market cap of the 199 internet stocks tracked by Morgan Stanley was $450 billion. The total revenue of those 199 companies was $21 billion. So the total revenue of the entire internet bubble era companies at that moment in time was smaller than Uber. So we have to put things in perspective. And then if you think about what's happening in cloud infrastructure today, and one of the reasons people are so excited about AI, we have companies, I have a company that's a 25-ish million AR business is spending almost a million dollars a year on Snowflake. So this ability to leverage compute on demand, and really the reason that people are getting excited about the new version, the kind of the new generation of AI that kicked off earlier this year, largely because of open AI, is because it is an on-demand model. And so you could see consumption grow very rapidly. We didn't have consumption models 20 years ago. On-prem software was not a consumption model. You spent six months with a sales rep doing steak dinners. And it was a long and involved process to get somebody to adopt te technology decades ago. Today, with the consumption model, new ideas, new business models, not to mention the fact that OpenAI, uh, GPT, went from zero to 100 million users faster than any application in history. I think the the hype is warranted in that it is going to have a major impact on our society, a major impact on the technology stack and the way people use technology. But will it show up in results for public companies in the next two quarters? Probably not. For yeah. a few, it will. But for most, yeah. it's going to take three to five years to play out. We'll talk about NVIDIA in a second. But this was interesting this morning in Axios. And it really actually, this is something that I've been saying, I feel like for a few months now, but it really, I think, summarizes it. The article was in tech. Everything is labeled AI now. And there's a quote here, under the hood, Silicon Valley's new AI products are mostly just efficient refinements of technologies we've all been using for years. And so when I think about some of these CEOs, and you're shaking your head here a little bit for the listener, and I'd love to get your take on it. But when I hear these, like the conversations about TAM and what it means for some of these advanced chips and these graphics chips from some of these CEOs of these companies, ultimately, these are going to be replacing existing chips. They're going to be re refined. There will be commoditized eventually, right? So when I think about what's sparked this latest leg of this rally was NVIDIA's guidance for the current quarter that was expected to be $7 billion in sales, and they guided to $11 billion. And I say to myself, okay, there was an article, and we'll put it in the show notes, about ByteDance this year have already bought a billion dollars worth of chips from NVIDIA. It could be a lot of it in that guidance. What are they doing? They're double, triple ordering ahead of this advanced chip ban that has been put in place by our government. I just think there's a lot of nuance to all this, right? And so if you 
don't expect to see commercialization of some of these products anytime soon, but you need to get access to the chips that will go into your supercomputers, that will go into the data centers, that will allow you to offer this compute to your customers, then you have to be buying these chips right now. And that's what's going on. The deceleration of that, which we could see in the not so distant future, Jeff, it could be a quarter or two quarters away, could be the thing that causes like this to come back to earth at some point. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that and why you were shaking your head a little bit when we talk about the refinements of existing technologies that many of these large companies, platform companies have been working on for years, if not decades. I think that's true. I think you also have to realize how early we are. I listened to a great podcast with Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, where he talked about the moderator asked him, how were you so late to this? And he said, <laughs> we're three to four months into GPT even being launched. He said, you have to remember the internet started to reach commercial viability in call it 95, 96. We, he said, we acquired YouTube in 2005 and YouTube today is one of the most valuable properties on the internet. So if you take that time frame of sort of 10 years to really see innovation work itself out and the cynic would say, oh, YouTube was a reinvention of TV, but it's a completely different thing, I would argue. I don't think we know yet what is going to come downstream from all of this new innovation and invention. But the reason that we as venture capitalists get excited about it is we know that it kicks off a new wave of innovation. We know that the internet kicked off a new wave of innovation. We know that mobile and cloud kicked off a new wave of innovation. So anytime we see this wholesale shift with new technology that is super powerful and has the ability to accelerate demand, we know there's a whole bunch of good things coming. We don't know what they are. And part of the problem in our business is we make thousands of, the industry makes tens of thousands of investments every year. Very few of them end up becoming the next Airbnb, the next Uber, the next Snowflake. But the ones that do generate mega, mega returns, and it's a power law business. So I think you'll see something similar here where I mentioned to you, I was at this B of A technology conference a few weeks ago with a group of public investors. And one of the things I was telling them is look back at the 08, 09 time period when Salesforce's market cap was $2 billion. Today, it's almost $200 billion. We are going to have some companies in the small cap public software slash internet arena today that are trading between call it $1 and $5 billion that are going to have a 10, 20, 30, 40x run from here. Some of those, I think, will probably embrace an AI in a way that we haven't thought of. We've already seen the destruction of what can happen for companies that don't, maybe the negative side of it with a company like Chegg. And we'll see if they're able to turn that around and embrace it and use it in a way that it really benefits their business and creates a tailwind. But I'm not sure we really know yet what the big tailwinds are going to be. And so obviously that's, that benefits us as venture capitalists because a lot of the companies that are going to embrace this stuff and really take advantage of it are private. But I think you're going to see some public companies. A lot of these companies that went public in the last two, not last two years now because we're in 23, but in 20 and 21 that put 100, 200, 500 million, a billion dollars on their balance sheet. They're very well capitalized. They're still young and very innovative companies that are run by their founders. They're going to embrace this technology and I think are going to drive a lot of the innovation and create a lot of returns for public investors. Can you put your finger on like kind of what what was the pulse at the B of A conference? And so again, a lot of public market investors. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a handful of, let's say, single digit billion market cap companies that have gone public, let's call it in the last five years or whatever, that are going to figure out how to embed this technology and create some massively disruptive sort of platform or product or service. But right now, again, going back to what we just talked about, it's the trillion dollar club that are really at least benefiting from a sentiment standpoint. And there's a broader, I think, trend going on here is in a very uncertain macro environment, a lot of investors felt very comfortable investing in a Microsoft, an Apple, a Google, an Amazon, a Tesla, some of these secular shifts that were already in pace that have the potential to be massively, let's say, accelerated by the use of some of these technologies which they've already been spending billions and billions of dollars to integrate. So I'm just curious, like, do some of the investors that you speak to, at least in the public markets, getting a little wary of the big platform companies? Because <laughs> I skip from $1 trillion to $2 yeah. trillion to, to go to $3 trillion. NVIDIA went earlier this year at a $300 billion market cap, and now it's over a trillion. Some of that stuff is just not particularly sustainable, right? Just it, like the laws of gravity will like actually have to work themselves into the public markets in the not so distant future. I think in any innovation cycle, you have a phased approach. The first phase, as you mentioned, is the demand for the infrastructure, right? We have to build out the infrastructure so that people can build on top of it. What do we have to do to build the infrastructure? We have to make the chips. We have to buy the chips. We have to buy the technology that will power the infrastructure 
chip you've obviously seen Nvidia go way up as you mentioned. You've got the infrastructure pro- providers like Apple, Google, Amazon, and one of the questions somebody asked at this conference was, "Who wins in the infrastructure layer? Which private companies?" It's going to be pretty hard, right? This, this is a very heavy capex area to play. It's very expensive. The private companies that are trying to play in this space are burning literally hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, Sam, the CEO of OpenAI has come out and said that the reason they did the big partnership with Microsoft was he couldn't afford to fund OpenAI as a nonprofit. He needed billions of dollars to spend on CapEx and infrastructure. So I think we're still in that first phase where the first beneficiaries are the, you know, the picks and shovels providers that create the infrastructure. They build the roads for the gold miners to come along. The next layer will be is a middle layer. Think of what we used to call middleware. APIs. It's all the things that plug into that infrastructure, the tools, the technologies, the monitoring, all the things that go in and sit on top of that. And then on top of that, you will have the end user applications, the things that benefit the the corporate customers, the enterprises, the consumers, et cetera. We're still in the first phase of that. And that's why you're seeing so much of the dollars accrue to those players that are at the very bottom of that stack. We're already seeing pace of play among private companies and public. Look at Adobe. Adobe's already launched a bunch of products that leverage generative AI. And the pace of play among private companies is unreal. I've already got several companies that I'm on the board of that have products in production that are leveraging GPT, adding a ton of value. And the demos that they show are pretty incredible. They are accelerating productivity. They're reducing the amount of work that their end customers have to do. We're early. We're literally, this is, most of this kicked off in January. And again, it was built on five to 10 years of development and innovation in AI and ML that had already been going on. That had been going on for a long period of time prior to this new generative AI phase that kicked off in January. I just think we're super early. I'm super bullish on it. Like a lot of folks, I think you're going to see the obvious areas where you're going to see huge impact probably very quickly are areas like call centers, customer service, sales and marketing software, things that are fairly easy to envision what an automated version looks like. And we're already seeing those demos and they're very cool. But then if you think about other categories like travel, e-commerce, right? How many of us have had to deal with the pain of trying to, you're, I was just looking for a backpack on the internet. Am I going to really go to Google and click around looking at pictures of backpacks in the future? Or am I going to tell some sort of AI bot, here's what I'm looking for, and it's going to come back to me with, this is the one you need. But it's just super early. So can I ask you a question? So right now you go to Google. Let's say tomorrow you go to Bard, okay, which is owned by Google. And they, <laughs> and they just give you a better result. And it takes you quicker to Patagonia or wh- whatever the hell it is. And they still get their fee. But the cost to compute for that same search was probably three or four or five X or something like that. Oh, wow. No, I, of fast. of yeah. course it will come down. It'll all be commoditized. And that's when I go back to valuations and I go back to expectations. And so to me, like this is that this goes back to that point about refinement of existing technologies. Of course, Sundar said that was our evolution. The blue link was going to go away from a search. It was moving towards this. He said they were an AI first company like seven years ago. I don't mean to be a skeptic by any means. I'm very optimistic about all the productivity gains and all this stuff. Think about this. Pre-pandemic, we were talking about automation, automation, that the robots were taking all the jobs, right? It's not too different of a conversation that we're having right now. The difference is that we had this two or three year period in the middle of these two conversations where we saw a black swan event happen and we saw a tremendous disruption to how like our businesses work, how individuals work, how we learn, how we travel, how we shop and everything like that, how we pay for things. The list goes on and on. But aren't these just some of the normal evolutions that we see as far as tech and how it advances like processes and the like? Yeah. So to me, I just, I guess I, I don't I, disagree. I, I don't disagree. I, I, I in any mania, Jeff, and we're in a mania right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I'm just curious. The risk capital needed somewhere to go. Crypto took a nosedive. And so the risk capital needed somewhere to go. And so it's going here. I guess my point is, if you're a long-term investor, I don't think the thesis is is a bad one. Can I interrupt you for a second? So in late 2021, we could have had the same conversation about the metaverse, like the same exact conversation. Okay. And you know, who else was hyping their graphics chips for the metaverse at the time was NVIDIA. And you know what they were doing a year before they were hyping their graphic chips for crypto mining. Okay, like what I'm saying is it's the same shit, dude. It's like it's over and over again. But this bubble is better than the last two bubbles because the <laughs> other two bubbles because the other two bubbles popped. Yeah. Okay, and web well, you think the metaverse has popped, or do you think Apple's new product is going to change your mind on that? 
I don't think it's going to change my mind today or tomorrow, but like spatial in three computing. years. But Jeff, you and I are going to do seven pods in a year and a half from now, hopefully that's an invite on spatial computing and how all of these companies that are trading at billion dollar valuations who just raised their series C spatial computing is going to be the thing in this thing that we're talking about right now. Oh yeah. That was just a refinement of a lot of these processes. I don't disagree with you, but I also don't work in an averages business. I work in a power law business. So of all the software hype that came out of the cloud, I mean, you wind back the clock, Adobe was like a $10 billion company a decade ago. My, I mentioned Salesforce at $2 billion. Like We did see trillions of dollars of value. And I think what's going to happen in this cycle is probably something similar to what we saw over the last decade with cloud. If you look at what happened with cloud, a couple of trillion dollars went to the big guys. It went to Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Google. A couple of trillion dollars went to the upstarts, right? The newer players, the independent software providers who captured that value, the Shopify's, the service nows, et cetera. I think you'll see something similar with AI. You'll, you're going to see trillions of dollars of value created. A lot of it's going to go to the imp- incumbents and some of it's going to go to the newer players. There will be a I don't know, 50 to 100 companies that benefit in a big way. There are small cap companies today. There's not going to be thousands. And so our job as investors, as a private investor, is really to search for those home runs. And I think that's a little different than asking the question of, as a public market individual investor, what should I be doing? My advice on Twitter frequently is you should own the S&P 500. You know, set up a wealth front account, put your money in there until you really have some solid thesis on an individual stock name. But are we going to see a ton of hype and trading in names like C3AI and things like that? Because are we going to see impact from Gen AI and C3AI's numbers in the next two quarters? I doubt it. But the stock's up, what, 100%, 50% in the last few months? So a lot of this is just short-term trading swings. I, I just I think you have to ask yourself, what is the potential for the US economy and the global economy in the next decade if we play this right? And there's the whole issue of what's the negative side? How much job loss are we talking about and how are we going to train people? Should we have, I personally believe in our country, we should have a multi-billion dollar, multi-year effort, man on the moon type effort to retrain our workforce to learn computer science and technology. We're not doing that. We should. This trend is obvious and it's coming our way. Why not allocate a few billion dollars to that and help folks who are coming out of eighth grade today be prepared to harness AI in five to 10 years. I think that's one of the most powerful things we could do as a country. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's you stumping again. I think Jeff Richards, 2024. Never running. <laughs> but, hashtag never running. <laughs> but it's interesting your point about the S&P 500, and it's a really good one. And it's one that Guy and I make. I'm a pundit, right? So I'm talking on CNBC. I got my pods. We're doing a lot of stuff here. And I'm trying to sometimes pick apart what I think are universal narratives on one side or the other. And I think that's a useful endeavor for to tease some of these things out. But by the same token, if you're an intermediate to longer term in investor, and you've said this in our pods for two years, the way you've invested, going back to when you were a teenager, when you were investing money that, yeah, it wouldn't have been great to lose, but it was money that you weren't going to touch for a very long time. It gave you the ability to be patient and think longer term. And what I would say is, so think about Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Tesla. Okay. Those are what, six or seven stocks. I don't even know. I might've, I can't even count anymore, but they're $10 trillion in market cap. All right. And on average, they're up about 50% on the year. Okay. So just think about that. And a lot of these trends are very similar. Why investors are flocking to these names, but also the opportunities that they see with some of this new technology going forward. They probably pulled forward a lot of excitement in the near term, in my opinion. 100%. But if they are 26% of the S&P 500, that's an index of 500 stocks, and there's six or seven, and they are like a quarter, you are exposed to all of these technologies. That's just matter of fact, and you might be more exposed than you'd like, because the last two times we saw the S&P 500 get really geeked up about that was in 2000, and then it was also in 2007, it got cut in half. So the thing that makes me nervous, Jeff, right now, this is putting my stock market hat on, is the parabolic nature, let's say more specifically of the NASDAQ 100, because those same six stocks make up 50% of the weight. And we recall, and your data is 100% correct, and it is different this time though, but the frenzy was very similar in the late 90s, 2000, because it wasn't just Yahoo and AOL and InfoSeq and all that other garbage. It was also the fiber players. It was Exodus Communication, the data center. A lot of the similarities are very similar. 
And the NASDAQ lost 85%, but most of those NASDAQ stocks, to your point, were not profitable companies. And if you looked at the range or the totality of the revenue and the user bases, they weren't there yet. But it's different this time. We're much bigger. We're much more concentrated. And the valuations are very different. It's definitely in this interest rate environment, too. So speak to that for a little bit. And one, one of the things that your listeners should probably be very cognizant of is diversification, right? I Those names you just mentioned, I haven't bought any of them in the last six months. Now, I own them all. But if you look at what I've been buying in my personal account, I've been buying oil and gas because it's down. I've been buying non-bank providers like KR and TPG and Aries Capital, folks who I think are going to capitalize in a down market for regional banks. They're going to provide credit to small businesses and mid-sized businesses around the country and do very well over the next five to 10 years. And they're run by incredible management teams that know how to do well in up and down markets. I think that the more fun exercise beyond betting on the names that everybody's already figured out is what are the small cap areas that could do really well? One area I'll give you is look at the low-code, no-code software space. So the public names are Asana, Smartsheet, and Monday. The private names are Airtable and Notion. Those are the main players in that category. Those companies are doing some really cool stuff in terms of they were already halfway there, you could argue, with this low-code, no-code infrastructure, which for those who don't know, is basically the idea that you as a layperson can create your own software applications using their platform. I'm going to really simplify the idea. But with AI, that gets even better, right? I can build new things that I wasn't really thinking of or didn't quite have the last mile thought process on. And I think that's an area, if I were a public investor, I'd want to own those names. I think they're going to be terribly innovative in that area. I think they're going to come out with a lot of cool new products. And I think they're going to do it in a way that the big players just aren't. Microsoft can't just change Excel overnight. It's the most one of the most widely used products in the world, billions of users. They can't just change it and make it a low-code, no-code application overnight. So I think those companies could do well. That's one area I'd be looking at. Because to your point, the trade on NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, around AI, that's already happened. Where does a long-term investor look to make three to five times their money in the next five to 10 years? I think you got to go hunt for some of these small cap names and say, gosh, which of these could have a real tailwind that people aren't really seeing yet? And then watch for the teams that are really innovating and launching new products and pushing hard on that. As somebody who sits on the board of a bunch of software companies, the buyer universe, the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 buyer universe is very hot to spend money in this area. Every CEO, CFO, board member is going to the CEO and saying, hey, what's our strategy to embrace this new technology around AI? Everybody's trying to figure out over the next 12 to 18 months what are they going to spend money on? What's it going to do for their organization? What kind of ROI are we going to see? I'm on the board of a software company called Vic.ai. It's AI for finance and accounting. The ROI in finance and accounting, think about all the manual and routine processes that happen in finance and accounting. And it's not just labor. Think about if we can take a company that does $10 billion a year in revenue and increase collections by one day. All we're doing is increasing collections by one day using AI, huge productivity and cash flow boost to that business. So I think you're going to see some of that kick in over the next year, and you're going to see Gartner and Forrester come out and say, we've evaluated these products. Here's what they're doing for the enterprise. And you're going to see a whole wave of buying happen for those companies. So go sift through those 100, 200, 300 small cap software stocks and look for names that you think could benefit from that. But Jeff, is, couldn't this just be a little bit of the hype playing in? Because again, you're a sophisticated private markets investor. You've lived through different cycles. You're a former operator. But some of these boards are not made up of people that have your pedigree. And so they keep hearing all this stuff again. What is CapEx? They're often investing in technology that helps productivity. That's the whole point. So to me, like I just think that you run the risk that we're in a soft enterprise spend environment, that companies now are being forced into this bidding war, if you will, for some products that NVIDIA can charge whatever they want for their H100. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's so, crazy. And so my point is, I just wonder that if we have the sort of economic slowdown that many economists and strategists think that we are on the precipice of, okay, and a bunch of companies that were already cutting headcount, already cutting costs all over the place, end up overpaying for stuff because there was just a mania going on, right, in the tech space, whether they find themselves in a difficult situation in the not so distant future, and then they end up cutting more heads, which ends up being this kind of doom loop, if you will, or so. So I just, I don't love the idea of a mania 
in the middle of what we are in right now, which was a very uncertain time post-pandemic in a global economy that is weak. There's no doubt about it. Europe is in a recession right now. Our GDP is tracking well below the pre-pandemic levels, just above 1% or something like that. China does not seem to actually have that that switch was not flipped on after zero COVID. So I don't know. I just think there's a no, lot I of agree. that I have agree. to be yeah. bubbling up. Yeah, no, I agree. The The market environment around us is scary. Certainly when SUV collapsed, we haven't really seen that play out yet. The contraction in regional bank lending, what is it going to do to commercial real estate? 80% of commercial real estate loans come from regional banks, 60% of mortgages, 60% of small business loans. When credit tightens in those regional banks, what happens to our small business economy in the US? We haven't really seen that play out yet. I'll tell you, as somebody who sits on the board of a lot of SMB tech companies, Homebase, Brightwheel, Electric.ai, we have not seen a slowdown in spending among SMBs. If you look at the data, they're still hiring. They're still reporting fairly positive results. You're seeing good numbers out of companies like Shopify. So the the recession that we've all predicted, which usually hits SMB hard, has not hit yet. Doesn't mean it's not coming. It could be coming because certainly that interest, higher interest rate environment is generally not good for small businesses, most of whom rely on credit to fund and operate their businesses. So I do worry about that. I do worry that's a headwind coming our way. So far, the market is proving surprisingly re- resilient. Folks like Goldman and Morgan elsewhere are coming out and saying, gosh, Goldman just took their chance of recession for the second half of this year from, I don't know, what was it, like 35%? And they just said, we don't see recession. So I'm not a macroeconomist. I think it's really hard to predict the future. When I'm thinking about AI, again, I'm not buying these names right now in the middle of the fervor. But what I am suggesting is that I think the technology is real, the trends are real, it's going to have a huge impact on our society in a very positive way, I believe. And there are going to be a lot of opportunities to invest in it, both in public markets as in, as well as in private markets. I agree with you on all of that. And I appreciate you coming and giving our listeners a lot of ideas and ways to play it. And I think in a very sober sort of manner. So Jeff Richards of GGV Capital, I really appreciate you coming back to the pod. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Thanks, bud. All right. Stick around for my conversation with Rick Heitzman of FirstMark Capital. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome back to OK Computer. I am joined by Rick Heitzman. He is the founder and partner at FirstMark Capital. Rick, welcome back to the pod. Hey, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me back. It's awesome to be back. All right, you and I have a couple topics here that we want to hit hard here. Sometimes I'd like to think of the pod through the lens of how we're programming CNBC's Fast Money. That is the program that I do on CNBC Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Tune in there, people. You and I have spent a lot of time, at least a dozen times on the pods this year, talking about this AI craze, if you will. And it's interesting. One of the reasons why I like to think about through the lens sometimes of CNBC, because a lot of it is coming through, what is the CNBC viewer who's maybe not as in touch with some of these tech trends as let's say you as a venture capitalist or me as somebody who kind of crosses over between media and finance and the like here. And what's captivating a TV viewer who's focused on markets and the like here. We've just spent so much time on it this year. And really, it's since the introduction in November of ChatGBT4 and all the kind of machinations that we've seen between Google and Microsoft and OpenAI and everything in between here. And it really seems to be bubbling up here, obviously, with NVIDIA crossing a trillion dollars in market cap last year, if you're thinking about the picks and the shovels. And we want to hit some of the themes. You guys have invested in some of these themes and not Johnny come lately's at first mark. We had your partner, Matt Turk, who is on the board of Synthesia. This is a company that we've talked about a few times. Last week, they announced a Series C. They raised $90 million that you guys participated on at a billion-dollar valuation. So we want to talk about that. And then the other one that we've spent a lot of time this year on CNBC, and we're really excited to focus on 
a company called Roe that you are on the board of. You invested in, I think you were the first institutional investor in this company. Zach, the CEO, founder of that company, has become a, a friend of mine. And Roe is now a great brand sponsor across the risk reversal media platform. And we want to talk about the Roe Body Program and how they pushed into these GLP-1s. This is these diabetes drugs that are also have been approved for weight loss. I've been using the Roe Body Program for the last now almost five months. And if you are listeners of our pod, you know that I've been talking about it and super excited about it. So we're going to hit those two topics. But Rick, let's start with AI. We had Matt Turk on the pod a couple, I want to say a couple months ago, he introduced his big machine learning report that he has been doing and you guys have been doing at Firstmark for over 10 years. And we really wanted to differentiate the fact that this is not something that you guys have just style shifted into. You didn't get away from the metaverse and Web3 and crypto and find yourself an AI. We changed our whole crypto fund into an, rebranded it as an AI fund. Now, actually, the polar opposite of that, we just finished our team meeting and some of what I'm sharing now is the things that we talk about in our team meeting and our partners meeting. And hopefully part of what we bring to OK Computer is not only sharing the conversations we're having in the boardroom, but also sharing the conversations we're having as a first mark team and sharing the conversations we have as a partnership, not only on individual investments, but we actually spend a massive amount of time on megatrends and things that we think are going to be fundamental. And one of the great times to invest in VC or be a VC investor is when there's platform changes. And you think about platform changes, of, as you hit on, Dan, digitization and the internet, there's a platform change, obviously, to the mobile internet and the advent of smartphones and iPhones and the like. And we view AI as being the next platform change. And when we started Firstmark 18 years ago, part of our thematic was the software was going to change everything and every industry is going to be touched by the digitization and software enabling that industry. We now believe that it's going to be similar to AI touching every industry. And obviously some industries, it'll power and be used by the incumbents to further their needs. And some industries will be totally upended by new participants. Are you annoyed? It seems like you guys had that software eating the world before Mark Andreessen just claimed, no, I'm just kidding. I'm we, sure. we had that before and I'm sure someone's <laughs> going to claim that AI is the new software and it's going everywhere. But I know the listeners here know where it all started. Let me ask you this. And I brought that up kind of tongue in cheek about Mark Andreessen, who's obviously a visionary, is a visionary about the internet going back to the early 90s. And when you think about some of the like the loudest voices in the space, they really have been some of the big platform companies that are trillion dollar market cap companies or some of these multiple hundred billion dollar market cap companies in the public markets and some of the moves that they've been making. Why do you think that people like like Andreessen Horowitz, and I'm sure they're invested in many of these names, and I'm not asking you to opine on them as a, an investment firm or anything like that, but it seems like Mark Andreessen has been really quiet about some of this stuff. Guys like Bill Gurley at Benchmark, who is a legendary VC investor in some of the first money and some of the biggest platform shifts like you talked about. It seems like there's been a little bit of the changing in the guard. Fred Wilson at USV, he spent a lot of time early in crypto, as did the Andreessen folks or whatever. And I don't see them blogging as much. I don't see them being quoted as much. What do you think's going on here? Is it that there's just some kind of new younger dogs out there who are like in just in the trenches here? Yeah, I think you're seeing what you're, there's two things is blogging as a platform has somewhat been replaced by multi-format media like we see here today. So not only are we recording for an audio via podcast network, we're also doing video. We're also getting people more information on a real-time basis. So the method upon which we communicate with our communities has changed. And also there's been a generational shift in VC. Bill Gurley is no longer making new investments for Benchmark. A lot of the other folks that you talked about are no longer managing partners of their fund and they've taken a half or a full step back from that. And therefore they're less prominent as that founder managing partner. As this new platform shift, I think we're going to hear a lot of new voices. It was great having Matt on the podcast. There's a number of other folks who are going deep into AI that we think will be incredible investors and be investors in that new form. And no different than the era of Moritz and Dora at Sequoia and KP respectively was very much an era of the late 90s. And they co-invested in Google and John Doerr invested in Amazon in the Series A. 
and they had their run. I think then there was the era of the Gurleys and Wilsons of the world, and they've had their run. I think you're going to see with this new platform shift, there's a new era. And I think that's going to bring new voices to the room. You've been really generous with introductions of some young, smart, really diverse group of investors in the VC space. And I know guys like Fred Wilson feel the same. They want to elevate some of the folks that they've mentored that are doing a lot of great work, giving them the opportunity that they had 20 or or so years ago. So I think that's fantastic. We actually have Adam Nelson coming on the pod, one of of your fintech leads over there at First Mark. So excited about that too. And hopefully Matt will come back soon. All right. So thinking about platform form shifts and everything you just mentioned on the media front is interesting. So going back to Synthesia, like this is a company that you had told me about last year and you'd shown me a demo and you said, you better watch your ass because there's going to be a digital AI powered avatar that might be able to sit in there on the fast money remote screen for you or do your podcast. But this is pretty fascinating. Billion dollar valuation, like we said, series C, $90 million. There's two things that stuck out to me, Rick, about the CNBC articles. NVIDIA-backed platform that turns text into AI-generated avatars boosts valuation $1 billion. The first word in that headline was NVIDIA, okay? So all of a sudden, it's not just it was you guys, it was Kleiner, it was GV invested in this round, but it was NVIDIA as a strategic. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. We already have seen that a lot in the AI space, but there was a quote that really stuck out to me. Its ultimate aim is to eliminate cameras, microphones, actors, lengthy edits, and other costs from the professional video production process. That is their mandate here. So are they coming for me as a podcaster, Rick Synthesia here? And how you know, listen, and I think you hear this all a lot, assisted intelligence. There's a lot of like plays on the AI verb. Like these tools are going to be very valuable to individual creators, but also large platforms. They will be. They will be. So they're not coming for us yet. The, ro- the robots are not at the gates of risk reversal media yet. What you're seeing is, and they have a very specific use case. So hitting on a couple of things you said there, obviously NVIDIA was included in CNBC because it was such a buzzy name. It just crossed the, tr- the trillion dollar threshold and they have become somewhat synonymous with AI as a lot of folks are viewing them as the fundamental pick and shovels of this revolution. The Levi Strauss is 150 years later as this is occurring, which in some ways they definitely are. And they are obviously helping that ecosystem, seeding that ecosystem and being good partners in that respect. And therefore, a buzzy name to include as one of the new investors in the company and someone we welcome. And then separately, what does what Synthesia do? So as we talk about what are the megatrends? So if software digitization changed everything, now you're going to see AI uh, be the new software and transform and empower people in new industries. As we think about that, we view that as a megatrend. And, and then therefore, this is a mega trend, but differently, we're not going to invest in everything. And I think what part of what CNBC or what we're trying to do here is people with don't have access to the more granular information. How do you parse out what every company is trying to buy their URL.ai and every startup is adding AI powered into every slide of their deck? What's really artificial intelligence? What are you really doing? And is that really AI? And one of the things that we do as we think about all of our investments, and this happened 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I started in software, and I think is even more important today is what is the job that technology is doing? So in software, it's what is the job it's doing either for a consumer or for an enterprise? And is it creating real value? Now with AI, is that artificial intelligence doing something intelligent? Is it doing real work? Is it doing a real job? And is it creating value? And therefore, can it share in some of that value? And for the case study of Synthesia today, it is. So you're able to, and I highly encourage people to go play with it because it really is one of those pieces of technology that's jaw-dropping. When you see the demos and you play with it, you can take text and you can turn it into an avatar of you. And I could be saying this in 150 different languages with different dialects, and I could use a text box to then create a video sample of me. And maybe in, in the future of future versions of risk reversal and OK Computer, this part of me, I could be a text box 
and it'll artificially do this. And then as we propagate this all over all the different nodes on our network of Twitter and Spotify and all the podcasting things, and someone's listening to it, they can listen to it in Mandarin. They can listen to it with an Australian accent. They can listen to it all over the world in a, the best way for them. And when they say they're eliminating some of these production costs, it's largely due for with sales enablement and training today. So if you're doing a training video, do you have to do a training video with a whole bunch of different takes? Do you have to have the lighting exactly right? Do you have to do someone who might not be as familiar with the media process, getting the media training, getting them up? And then do you have to dub it or do something in subtitles to make it culture or language dependent? So being able to do all those things creates a tremendous amount of value. Being able to do them in real time creates even more value. And what Synthesia is seeing is having that revenue driven by just being able to capture a portion of the value they're delivering for enterprise customers. And we think it's just the beginning stages of that. As folks are thinking about artificial intelligence as a way to transform any format of content into any other format of content. So let's do a little inside baseball here. Again, going back to the NVIDIA part of this. So they did not disclose how much NVIDIA invested. Take us into the boardroom. When you have a bunch of VCs that are basically on the board of an early stage company like this, and then it just starts to take off, right? Again, just the, the product and the uh, adoption of the, the products and the competition is heating up. What is it like to have a company like that come in and invest capital, strategic capital? Is this something that at a Series C that investors like you or board members like you are generally very happy to see? Or does it make things a bit more complicated from conflicts of interest and the like here? And when you think about what if there's a new better chip that comes out, and it's not the NVIDIA chip or something like, I'm just curious, like, help us think oh, about what's that. NVIDIA doing in the ecosystem as a trillion dollar company. Will this investment ever be meaningful to them, except as a way, as people call it, doing the brain suck of just coming in and figuring out what the company's doing and either keeping that for themselves or sharing it with other investments or strategies. So having a corporate VC on your cap table is always discussed at great lengths. So it's when do you bring them in? When can they add value? And how do you create a situation where no different than anything else, that you know, one plus one equals three, that having them as part of the cap table, having them involved in the company and the information they share and the information we share is accretive to both of us. So in this case specifically, but we've invested with everybody from AT&T and Time Warner to Intel to probably every major corporation and every major VC arm of that corporation over the last 20 years, sometimes very successfully and sometimes not so much. But you know what you want to do setting it up like any other relationship is say, here's the kind of information we're going to share with you. And here's the kind of information we'd love to hear from you as NVIDIA is now building out a whole portfolio of AI-focused investments. And what are they learning and in a non-competitive way, what can they share back with that ecosystem so people understand how things are developing? What are the new chips that are coming? What are the new features of those new chips? And what does that enable in my business of Synthesia? And that's part of the conversation that occurs anytime a corporate VC gets involved. Yeah, and think about this. NVIDIA, after that huge gap, after its huge revenue guidance that they gave last month, they filed a $10 billion shelf. And I'm not asking you to opine on this, but think about this. The stock goes up every day. They could raise an untold amount of money and anything that they would invest in, in around the ecosystem that they think, not just in 2023, that might be buying their chips, right? That help power these generative AI models. How do they develop the next ones? So spreading some cash around to do that sort of thing. Well, that's the best use of corporate VC. Some people do it really well. Our, our good friend, Allison Goldberg, does it at Comcast Ventures. And they've done a great job over time of being able to say, how does this all work together? And how am I creative in that ecosystem from both not only a financial perspective, but also a strategic perspective that I see how people are using my chips. I see how people are participating in the way that media is being transformed at Comcast. I see what people are doing if I'm Tencent in the video game world. So that's a way for them to get that view. 
And as you said, if you have $10 billion, how do you seed that ecosystem? So maybe you even accelerate it both through knowledge and capital. So you know, you're able to extend your own leap. Let's shift gears a little bit because this is the other one. And it struck me why I could put these two together on OK Computer. I think it was last week on Fast Money. We spent a lot of time, I think the whole A and B block talking about AI related stories. And then in the C block, we went into the healthcare space and healthcare stocks have not been acting particularly well, biotech or large pharma over the last year, which is interesting because there was so much excitement in and around all of the innovation with the COVID vaccines and a lot of the treatments. It just seems like the hangover post COVID once we reopened, it was like nobody just didn't want to be anywhere near them. Just look at the chart of Pfizer, which a lot of folks feel like won the pandemic. And I know that sounds like a horrible thing to say when you think about how many people were affected, death, illness, and obviously what it did to the global economy and the stuff that we're going to be feeling for years and years after. And now it just seems like there is so much excitement around these GLP-1s that were originally FDA approved for diabetes and for pre-diabetics, but also they found that this is just an amazing weight loss drug. And it's interesting, a bunch of these telehealth companies have moved into it. Obviously, Roe is the one that you and I are going to speak about, but I want to take a step back before we get into the Roe Body Program. And I want to talk about how you met Zach, the co-founder of the company, how you invest in the company, what drew you to this, I think you're going to call it a mega trend because it's one of those ones that you've talked to me about for years. And at times, it wasn't as sexy as some of the other stuff that that Firstmark was investing in and around tech. But it really was the pandemic, I think, that kind of highlighted the benefits of these models. And now we're seeing it as they want to verticalize around some of these, again, this weight loss. And there's a whole host of other things that they do extremely, but they're not as sexy right now as, let's say, the robotics. So let's take a step back. Let's talk about how you met Zach, how you got involved in the company, and some of the things that you've witnessed as a board member over the last few years and where you think the company's going. I've been involved with Zach and Roe for several years as an investor and board member. We led their Series A, their first institutional round, back when they were doing tens, maybe even thousands of dollars of revenue, and they had just launched. And taking a step back beyond that, to your point, Dan, on megatrends, healthcare is the biggest part of the U.S. GDP. It's the fastest growing part of the GDP, and it's probably been the most resistant to digitization of any part of the GDP. So we thought this is right for disruption. This healthcare cost can't continue unchecked. They, it, it would basically eat up the whole government budget. And then therefore what's gonna happen, and it's creating high deductibles and there's a million different ways we can deconstruct it, probably part of a long form episode in itself. But we thought for digital disruption, how do we find the best entrepreneurs to go and tackle that problem? And fortunately we were able to meet with Zach, Rob, and Saman, the founding team there, they actually brought together some wonder twin powers of Zach being the CEO. His dad was a doctor. He grew up thinking about, caring a lot about healthcare. He actually had a heart issue at a young age, which created some own medical conditions, which made him effectively body hack himself. Saman was a serial entrepreneur with incredible product jobs, and Rob, on his go-to-market and growth side, they brought it together and they said, hey, what we're seeing is Consumers want more choice. They want to go direct. They want to have their medicine delivered directly to them. And they had the one little secret at the time that no one really saw was that Viagra was coming off patent. And what that enabled you to do was be able to offer this whole patina of one of the most successful drugs in history was then going to have their price dropped and you were going to be able to deliver generic Viagra to people. And Viagra was important because ED and sexual health is often a kind of an engine light for your overall health. So how do you help people get healthier by delivering symptoms, by curing symptoms, which everybody wants to cure? So that was their overall take. And they thought that as they grew and as they built trust with those consumers, they were going to be able to solve a lot more problems with the end goal of building trust by earning that trust, by making their customers healthier. So we built that business, we grew from thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, to millions of dollars, to tens of millions of dollars, to hundreds of millions of dollars. But as that grew, not only we earned trust by having millions of customers, but we were able to see and have some, begin to build some relationships with some of the largest drug companies 
because we were delivering the best consumer experience. So whether that's via telehealth and the ability to, to serve customers via telehealth or being able to provide a mixed model of being able to access to doctors, which is incredibly important for many Americans, but also being able to provide great value to them. And whether you're a self-pay customer or a co-pay customer, being able to say, hey, this is the symptom I'm facing now. How do I figure out what this is? And how do I not only cure the symptom, but the root cause of that so I get and feel healthier? And then about uh, a couple of years ago, you, you saw Ozempic and Wagovi and the GLP-1s come along. And a lot of people were saying, hey, this could be an incredible breakthrough drug that obviously it, it's able to fight diabetes and early onset diabetes, but also do a lot of things that make you fundamentally healthier. And this could be a wide-use drug to make all of all Americans healthier, feel better, lower, lower cholesterol, lower your, your blood pressure, and be able to live a healthier life. And as we learn more, we were able to say, hey, this is a core part, and it's row body, not only because you're hopefully shrinking your percent body fat, but you're feeling better and creating a whole healthier person. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, again, there's a lot of great products that they offer, and none that I really needed until I started learning more about the row body. And I would throw mind in there, man. So I've been on this program for five months, and I was I had a bunch of the pre-diabetic symptoms. You just talked about blood pressure. You talked about high cholesterol. You talked about you throw in there sleep apnea. I had all these. I've had my doctors been telling me for years now, lose, I was, I'm 6'2", I was 226 at my max. They're like, get to 200, get to 195. It's hard, man. I just turned 50 years old. I live in a lifestyle that's not so conducive to always eating well and exercising, getting the amount of sleep that I need or whatever. And it was just something, man, like for me, it all just really clicked because I don't like going to the doctor, okay? My doctor said, yes, you should definitely take these drugs. I've had other doctors who don't take insurance and, and they were like, no, nah, you should just keep coming to me. And I'm gonna be honest with you. And so downloaded the app. I was actually already a customer of Roe. They sent me a blood test. I did a couple telehealth visits with doctors. They prescribed the medicines that they thought fit for my pre-diabetic symptoms, but also with an idea of taking some weight off, but getting all those numbers down, right? Here I am five months later, I've lost 30 pounds. I haven't been 195 or six, I think since the 90s. And I'm not, and I'm not lying to you, Rick, but my blood pressures come down. My cholesterol's come down. I don't snore anymore. So that means I'm sleeping better. I have better energy all around. And I guess the ease of use of it is to me, well, listen, and you could say this sounds kind of shilly. It's not shilly. I'm using it. It's changed my life in five months. And I will tell you this. So Rick, we've been in business at Risk Social Media as because you are one of our fine investors and backers of this business. We've had a lot of really great financial services brands who partnered with us to be brand sponsors and ones that we believe in and we use their products. But I have never, and I've had lots of people say, oh, I love CME or I love FactSet or I love SoFi, this and that, whatever. I have not had this sort of response in the last month or so since I've started talking about my row body experience by people emailing me, coming over social, asking about this product, how to get on it. And it's not just about weight loss. It's about, for me, it's about changing my life and changing my health at 50 years old. And I can say that it's done that. And we were very, as we were going back and forth with our friends over there at Row, this is something as we've been talking about them becoming a brand sponsor, this really has worked for me. You were already a customer and a happy customer, which drove the sponsorship, not vice versa. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that it worked. <laughs> it did. And listen, I will tell you this right now. And I know, and I just want to attach one thing. Zach has written some great blog posts about it. I think they're really being thoughtful about it. We know that there's some issues with access to these drugs for a whole host of reasons. There's just tremendous demand for them. Obviously, the pricing is something that is not for everybody right now. That will all get better. I think proof of concept and getting more data about it and having great trusted brands like Roe offering these sorts of programs and thus these drugs with the telehealth ease of use. I think that's a really important part. That's one of the things that we feel really great here about being able to offer through our own personal experience. So I would just say, hey, go to Roe, R-O-E-O -E -O, slash 
okay. That's O-K-A-Y if you want to learn more about it here. And again, I'm living proof for it, people. And I've already emailed with dozens of people who are listeners to our podcast and the like here. So check it out here, people. And we're happy to talk about it. But Rick, from you, from an investor standpoint, as a board member, how has this changed the way that you're thinking about the company and the opportunity set? Because listen, you can get these drugs from your doctors and the like here, but all in one app, as you, as we like to say here, as some of our other brands, that is the ease of use. And if you are busy and you don't just talk to me a little oh, bit. You have someone right there, right? The people are checking up on you. I don't know the last time a legacy GP ever checked up on how my drug, you know, how if I was taking a prescription medication, how's that going? I definitely haven't had a text relationship with the GP ever. And so how do you maintain that relationship? And I think part of the way that healthcare is changing is your ability to access the best person at the right time. With Roe, you're accessing the right person, whether that's a doctor or whether that's a LPN or a nurse or anybody at the right time. And you're able to do it at your convenience, either synchronously via video or asynchronously via chat. And I think some people can't even begin that journey because of just the access to medical professionals. And so what you're seeing is a disruptive technology via telehealth. And I think telehealth is even morphing of, hey, here's the be- the right care at the right time. And I think because due to shortages of doctors and nurses, as well as the accessibility and people, because of the pandemic, being more used to Zoom, that you're going to, the quality of care should increase and the accessibility of care, I hope, is going to increase to let people take advantage of services like that. So not only are you going to get access to a great drug, but you're going to get a better customer experience than you would through a traditional med- traditional doctor. Yeah, no, I certainly have. And one of the things, and Zach is coming on the pod with Guy and me, I think great. it's going to be a drop in a week or two. So you guys will get to hear it from him and how they thought about this product transition or moving into this. And he has a great FAQ on all the questions. And there are, listen, there are a lot of questions about a lot of people are hesitant of telehealth. They're hesitant of taking a shot. They're hesitant of things that make their brain do something that yes. they're not used to doing. And he addresses a lot of that. So we'll put the FAQ also in the show notes here. Listen, Rick, I really appreciate it. We wanted to go deep on these two topics. These are two companies that you know really well from the first mark perspective, but also me as far as Roe from being a great sponsor and brand partner of ours with Risk Social Media, but also most importantly, my use of their products and services here. So that was something that we wanted to lay out from this perspective. And you're going to hear it straight from the horse's mouth when Zach joines us in the next week or two. Rick Heitzman, First Mark Capital, thanks a lot for all your insights today. We hope you'll be back on the pod very soon. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.